Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Timothy Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatsparks.com. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm so excited to have as my guest, Kate Laurie. Kate is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. In addition to her master's in marriage and family therapy, she also has an MBA and is a registered art therapist. She co-hosts her own sex-positive podcast called Open Deeply with Sunny Megatron and has been featured in BuzzFeed and has been a guest on numerous other podcasts and has been on Playboy Radio and has written for Good Vibrations and Hollywood Magazine. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So glad to have you. Um, yeah, as I told you, I've been um, listening to your book on audibles. Um, I don't know, maybe a little more than halfway through, and I'm finding it to be a very comprehensive and, um, you know, kind of leading edge stuff around attachment theory and trauma and stuff like that. And I love that you have that diverse background to um, help clients and help educate people about this. But before we get into the specifics of what you teach, um, I would love to hear a little bit about your story and how you grew up to be a sex positive non-monogamy therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Um, Well, I might jump around. Um, So when I was younger, I had an 11-year monogamous relationship that was quickly followed by a 13-year non-monogamous relationship and marriage. Um, And and at this point, I'm I'm not in that marriage anymore, but um, we're still friends. When I grew up, even though my family are uh, Canadians, uh, you know, my my mom was born in Canada and a very, you know, progressive, liberal family. There's certain events that led us to living in Alabama, even, you know, and pretty much everything, you know, just like the culture in Alabama is kind of the antithesis of what I'm about. But, you know, being a sex positive psychotherapist in a lot of ways is a social justice movement, right? It's not, to me, it's not just about being sex positive and reducing sexual shame. Uh, A lot of times other social justice movements come with it, like being body positive and and fighting for Black Lives Matter, et cetera, and so on. And so I think growing up there and, and, you know, running into KKK rallies, things like that, you know, um, set the stage for me to be a fighter for justice. And Uh I think that's part of what built me up to be a sex positive psychotherapist because you know in America and so many places in the world there's so much sexual shame and so many Mm -hmm. things that get in the way of us being authentic not just sexually but in so many ways 
And so to me, that's part of what being a sex positive psychotherapist is. It is fighting for, um, for authenticity and equity and, and, um, and reducing sexual shame. Right. Excellent. Yeah, and I see that you specialize in serving um, the populations that, that we mentioned in your bio, non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. So it sounds like your, is your practice mostly consist of people from those groups, or is that just part of it? Um, I would say a lot of times even one client embodies many of those specialties. Like it's not rare uh-huh. for me to have a client that's like, say, a porn performer who is also non-monogamous and kinky who maybe has a trauma history because I'm also a trauma specialist, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all in one human, who maybe has a mood disorder, you know, like all, all my specialties in one human. <laughs> that's not uh-huh, right. for me. Every now and then I get couples that are monogamous, but usually the reason that happens is because one of those partners is kind of hoping to nudge their partner towards either kink or non-monogamy or something. You know, uh-huh. but yeah, most of my clients uh, fall within those specialties. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. And then um, you said you had a, a long non-monogamous relationship. And what were some of mm-hmm. the mistakes you made and learning some of the biggest learnings you had from that? Well, you know, I, I would say that um, my ex-husband, Richard, uh, he is a bit of a male muse in the sense that he can kind of see things in his lovers, you know, before they can even see it in themselves. So in a lot of times, in a lot of ways, he, he created a lot of growth in me. But as far as the difficulties, he is someone that has a vision and then just charges full speed towards it. Meanwhile, I, when I was younger, even though I've always been, I think, more assertive than a lot of people, in a relationship, despite me being assertive, I still was what I would call an overgiver. Um, mm-hmm. And so the combination of him pushing hard and fast and always liking change resulted in me being overwhelmed, but a lot of times maybe saying yes when, it, when I thought it was a true yes, because I was operating mm-hmm. from my head. You know, mm-hmm. and I talk about that in the book, and my, my belief that part of having a happy life and a happy non-monogamous life is being connected not just to your thoughts, but your emotions and your body sensations from a grounded, centered place. And when you're over-reliant on any of those three, your little boat is kind of heading towards the rocks a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times. And so um, I operated from that kind of Spock-like logic um, that made me say yes to things when I shouldn't have through a lot of the relationship and it wasn't until I started to practice what I've been preaching that I all of a sudden started making way better choices for myself, started feeling uh, happier, started feeling like I was aging backwards, like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. everything got better when I started to practice that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I really relate to that. And there was something you said in your book that really validated kind of what I was seeing in my practice with my clients. Um, but the way you said it, I don't remember exactly, but it was something about if you can slow down so that the person who's more traumatized in the relationship can kind of get their grounding, then you can have much more long-term success and happiness in the relationship. But if you're racing to get all these things you want right away and forcing your 
more triggered partner to come along with you, then it could just blow up early on, something like that. <laughs> Do you remember what you yeah. said there? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, ideally we want both people to feel heard and seen. And sometimes mm-hmm. when there's a big difference between those people, it can be very difficult, um, you know. But, but yeah, I mean, if one person's traumatized and triggered, um, you know, they need to go slower. They, there's a lot of things that they need to do in terms of work. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so basically one thing that I talk about, you know, is, is everybody's been talking about attachment uh, styles, right? So mm-hmm. maybe we right. should just touch on that um, yes, and just say great. that although, you know, although there are four attachment styles, right, um, four major attachment styles, um, one, you are not set in concrete in that attachment style. Like if you feel like you're um, an ambivalent attachment style, it doesn't mean till the end of days that you're mm-hmm. going to be in an um, ambivalent attachment style. If you heal, if you get partners that are more secure, et cetera, you may start to move towards a secure attachment style. And also, like if you think about the disorganized attachment style, it's kind of described as somebody with a lot of trauma and neglect in their backstory. But the thing is, not everyone with a trauma history is going to show up like a disorganized attachment style. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So, yes. you know, there's, there's some of those will, you know, show up more as an ambivalent type or what have you. So it, all I'm saying is that we're complicated as humans and it's nice to have these benchmarks. But, you know, that's what they are. They're just benchmarks, and it shouldn't be carved in concrete. But Mm -hmm. from there, we can kind of start to look at our attachment injuries because that's what those four models are built on. Well, three of them. The three insecure types are more built on attachment injuries. We can start to look at our attachment injuries, see what's getting triggered in our non-monogamous relationships, um, see how our partner is relating to our triggers, and then from that place, we can start to move forward in a more conscious way rather than a reactive unconscious way, which is what most people seem to do, um, and start to have mm-hmm. a better non-monogamous relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, that is the thing that people find the most challenging when they're in their head. They're saying, this makes so much sense to me. I, I really intellectually agree with non-monogamy, and I want my partner to be super happy and do whatever they want. And yet there's this other part of me that's just like, oh, I can't do it. It's just like, it's almost out of your control. So how mm-hmm. do you heal from a, I know that it can take some deeper therapy work and EMDR stuff, but in general, like, is it possible to heal those attachment injuries? And what does it entail? You know, that's a huge question that we could talk about. You know, we could literally write several novels on that, right? Um, but let's talk a little bit about it. Well, one, you know, everybody's level of trauma is different, right? We all have a certain amount of trauma. And and let's just look at the word trauma. A lot of people, when they hear trauma, they think of a war veteran that served three tours of duty, or they think about somebody who's been, God forbid, gang raped or something like that. But we all have some level of trauma, even if it's what's called small T trauma, you know, like we might have, you know, like attachment injuries or traumas, you know, um, so, you know, if we have a backstory, for instance, where, uh, you know, there's been a lot of abandonment, um, maybe a high school boyfriend or partner left us with, you know, 
and, and we felt really dumped and hurt and injured or maybe one of our parents left without a note and we have kind of a, a, a pattern of that in our life and then we go into non-monogamy and we bring that into our non-monogamous relationship and so we're way more fearful that our partner is going to leave us, which is, you know, the story that life has told us, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so when we're at that, you know, say play party or in the situation and our partner's paying attention to someone else, then different things may happen. You know, that history may light up, um, you know, so that a, a situation, if we didn't have that back history, maybe it would have been a little disconcerting at a three from zero to 10, but because of that history, it's hitting us at a nine, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, because we're dysregulated in our body, um, now that causes shifts in the body so that our judgment isn't as good and, and as, as one example. And so I think one of the first steps, especially when it's happening in the moment, is to take some time to get grounded. You know, mm -hmm. um, most situations we can do that. Even if we were at a party, we might be able to go to the bathroom and just do some deep breathing or tell our partner that, you know, make a, up a little white lie or something and say, oh, I got this phone call and I need to talk to you about it and step out of the party and go for a little walk and, and you know, calm yourself down. But number one is to get grounded in your body again, because if you're not grounded in your body when you're trying to negotiate a difficult situation, then um, it's likely to escalate if you try and work mm -hmm. through a, a triggered moment while you're dysregulated in your body. So mm -hmm. that's number one, is finding a way to get grounded in your body first. Um, so you were just asking me how to heal from these things. So I'm kind of answering when, when somebody gets triggered in, in a particular moment. But so that, you know, if we step away from a moment like that where, you know, we're at the party and we just answer it in a more general way, which is how you asked me, um, we can start to rewire our body. Um, the easy way, again, is, is things like EMDR, but not everybody can afford EMDR. Um, we want to get to, our to a place where our body doesn't get so dysregulated. A lot of times people, with, the more trauma you have, the more you'll get stuck in the high zone easily or, mm -hmm. stuck in the or put in the low zone, the high zone being panic attack, rage, ang you know, extreme anger, the low zone being dissociated, numb, checked out, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, someone with a lot of trauma gets kicked into one of those two places very easily. So you can start to retrain your mind and retrain your body. Um, part of that is developing resources and practicing connecting to your resources throughout the day. Um, for me, I like to combine a few things. Like if I go out to my porch, I have this gorgeous view of hummingbirds and trees for miles. And so I can go out there and just say thank you to the birds and the hummingbirds and everything that I look at and then notice what part of my body knows about that good thing, which might be my heart. And, you know, and so now I'm pairing the positive resource with gratitude and then pairing the gratitude, the positive resource with the part of my body that knows about it. So mm. maybe that's the warmth in my heart. Be focused on that warmth in your heart. Um, now it's getting bigger and it's expanding. So you're training your body to start to operate in a more grounded, centered place every time you do that. So that, that's so one that, little practice that you can do. Uh huh. And so that's you. You mentioned um, practice. Uh, these practices will keep you from getting into that triggered state so easily. Is that kind of what you're saying? 
because if you, you practice like that, you were saying it, that it's good to start practicing avoiding getting like stopping it sooner before you get into those extreme states. Yeah, I mean it's it's like if you're not already in a triggered spot and you're just trying to retrain your body so that in uh-huh. general you're operating in a more grounded place, then doing I an see. exercise like that, meditation, mindfulness, all of these things exercise, anything that gets your body more grounded and centered is going to help you when you're actually upset, right? It's kind of like when you take karate. If you take karate classes, they teach you how to do a kata, which is kind of like an, you know, it's like you're pretending like you're in a fight, but you have no partner. And they do that so that when you are in the bar and you're seeing red, that your body still knows what to do. So this Mm -hmm. is a little bit, there's a similarity in the sense that when you're practicing being grounded when you are in a situation that's triggering, your body's not going to get as escalated as it would be if you weren't practicing things like mindfulness and grounding skills, you know, throughout your day, finding different ways to ground yourself. When you, when you are in a situation where you're being triggered like that, again, it's good to have an agreement with any partners that you have to be able to do a proper timeout. A lot of people, most of my couples do not do a proper timeout, you know, when Mm -hmm. they first come to me. It -hmm. it looks more like this, fuck you, and they storm out and slam the door, you know, (laughs) that kind of, you know, that's what their timeout looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. and that that leaves the person left behind, uh, one, feeling that their partner might be breaking up with them, two, Mm -hmm. feeling that maybe their partner doesn't love them anymore. Uh, three, feeling uh, disrespected, feeling like the t- that they're disrespected and that the topic is being disrespected and dropped mm-hmm. and not knowing mm-hmm. when the person is going to come back. So if you hit some of those things before you leave, like saying, look, I, I love you. I'm upset with you right now. I'm feeling a little dysregulated. I need to leave for a moment, but I'll come back in 10 minutes or an hour, what have you. I'm just going to go ground my body. When I come back, we can finish this conversation, but I just need to calm down. And that may be mm-hmm. just going to the bathroom for 10 minutes and deep breathing. But mm-hmm. having that agreement, you know, by saying something to that degree, it leaves the partner knowing that, they're not, that you're coming back, you still love them, you're not disrespecting them, and, you know, and that you intend to finish the conversation. Um, it's one of those things that you have to agree to because a lot of times I've had clients where one person's trying to do a proper timeout and the other person's blocking the door, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? So it has yeah. to be an agreement that you both are making to allow the other person to leave and, and ground themselves. So that's, that's one thing that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we've listed a couple of things and I, I could keep going if you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I like that. I'm, I'm a big fan of the timeout too. And um, to practice, I, I tell my clients to practice noticing when you're very first starting to get into that fight or flight freeze mode and take the time out early before you get into that state because once you're in that to negotiate from your executive functioning in your brain, <laughs> you're now in your lizard brain and you see your partner as a threat right. and you can't negotiate. So it's really important for people to realize when I get to that state, it's not possible to have a adult conversation. So just take a pause, come back and try another time. <laughs> so I love that you're teaching that too. That's really great. Um, but just thinking yeah. about like the mindfulness, um, so many people that I've interviewed who specialize in non-monogamy eventually get to the place of having a strong spiritual element to their practice. 
And so I see that in yeah. yours as well. And I thought that you, you teach um, a Buddhist concept of suffering equals pain with resistance. So can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Because I think we're, we don't always know how to deal with pain. And then we end up, it ends up staying with us for a long time and we build up resentment. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I just wanted to back up and tag on to something yeah. you just said a, uh-huh. a moment ago, you know, when you were saying you, you need to take a time out before you start getting super upset. Like sometimes yeah. when I tell people that they'll, they'll say, but Kate, it's, it happens on a dime. I'm fine. And then I'm seeing red and there is no window, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. people will say that about anger. They'll say that if they have an eating disorder about, you know, grabbing the Twinkies or what have you. A lot of people will mm-hmm. say that they go from zero to a hundred and there's no gap. And what I would say is that's not true. I would say mm-hmm. if you start tracking your body and start having a lot of people who think that are living in their head and mm-hmm. they don't have a relationship with their body. And if they start to track their body and start to look for what are the cues that mm-hmm. happen right before I lose it, they'll find them. And all they need exactly. is 30 seconds. If you have 30 seconds, you can shove your foot in the door basically and be able to change your life. And mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of clients do that. Um, let's see. Okay. So I love that. Thank you. With that, dude, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's completely possible. I've seen a lot of people do it. Um, you know, with the Buddhist formula, uh, so many people, how should I put it? Like when you think of that person that is in <clears throat> L.A., an L.A. traffic jam, there's a person that's in the L.A. traffic jam that's like, okay, I just can't do anything about this, so I'm just going to listen to a podcast or some radio until we get going. And then there's the person that's like cussing at the person in front of them and like <laughs> – throwing a fit and they're like seeing red and all that. So that mm-hmm. is the person that is not only having pain, but they are, they're resisting and causing themselves all sorts of suffering that's way beyond what they would feel if they just accepted that they're stuck in this traffic jam and they can't do a damn thing about it. Right. right. You know? right. And, um, you know, I, I think within non-monogamy, um, you know, that's a, there's a lot of ways that that could show up. Um, let's just think about um, you feel like – I'm going to choose something that is really typical. A lot of times I have clients that come into my office and they're in a shame spiral. And they'll say, why am I so horrible at polyamory? Mm-hmm. And why am I such a failure as a human? And it's because they have some trauma and it's because their trauma is being triggered within non-monogamy. And so now not only are they, not only is their trauma triggered, but they are also spiraling into hating themselves, Mm -hmm. you know? And, Mm -hmm. you know, so again, this is an example of someone who's experiencing pain and instead of having compassion for themselves and being like, you know, I got a lot of trauma. A lot of my trauma is getting triggered this is hard and I'm going to be gentle with myself and love myself. Instead, they, they just go into a place of resisting where they're truly at and hating mm-hmm. themselves for it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and exactly. I think I, yeah. And a lot of times they've chosen partners 
that are maybe overtakers that don't have compassion and they have a little bit of entitlement and are like pushing, 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 and they're almost complicit in, in bullying them. Like uh-huh. <laughs> if that makes sense. And you yeah, know, that's, that's not to shame the person that wants to go faster within polyamory or non-monogamy. It's just that person that wants to go faster should be going, should be with a partner that also wants to go that fast, really, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times mm-hmm. you end up with these, these, these people that are kind of mismatched in this way. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you can't control your partner, but you can love yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and you can decide, okay, this is where I'm at and I'm going to love myself and I'm going to go at the pace that's right for me. I, I, the last thing I need is to re-traumatize myself and add mm-hmm. more trauma onto the heat, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one way that you can just handle your pain rather than resisting where you're at and then now you're suffering as well, right? right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's such a delicate balance. Uh, and it happens so often with couples that have been together a long time and then they open their relationship down the road where one of them feels like mm-hmm. they've been denying their non-monogamous self for a long time and they're ready to go and the other one's like mm-hmm. wait a minute this is not what I signed up for I'm going to try to do this but give me a chance to like breathe into this and the slower partner yeah. is feeling like they're doing everything they can um, and the faster partner is feeling like they're doing everything they can <laughs> but they're, they're both yeah. not really getting what they want. So when there's a couple that's more long-term like that and they want to stay together and they just have really different approaches to it, does it come down to just the faster partner has to decide, like, if I want to stay committed to this partner, I'm going to have to go slower than I like? Is yeah, that well, well, first just, well, well, first, let's just state the, op- the obvious that in, in the situation that you just painted, there's no bad guy, right? Nobody, mm-hmm. Nobody's mm-hmm. a bad guy. You know, right. and I think a lot of people, if they were watching this on a TV show, they'd want to decide who the bad guy was, you mm-hmm. know, and, and there really isn't a bad guy in that situation. And a lot of times that's the situation. You've got two lovely humans that are just mismatched in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have a tendency to tell stories about each other. Like when, you know, there's just things to break down, uh, to clarify, to make sure that the problem is not worse than it already is. Like a lot of times the person, like a lot of times when, when there is that kind of division, um, one or both people are catastrophizing a lot. Mm-hmm. Like say, you know, the one that's hurting more is like, you know, I was just nervous at the party. And then the other person who's already frustrated because they're going so slow is like, see, you can't even do this. You're just, so, you know, doing this to make me happy. I don't even know why we're trying this. You know, they just took, an issue that was maybe at a three in terms of, you know, just some anxiety and they're taking it to a hundred and now they're having this right. massive fight and the person that's trying to just say a self-care need all of a sudden just like crumbles in a heap, right? And the right. person that wants to go faster is just so frustrated, right? So, I mean, one thing is like be aware that catastrophizing is one of the most common things that couples do or, you know, any two people, um, that are non-monogamous. Um, I, I tend to talk in a dyad because that's what comes into my practice is like one or two people. I don't have mm-hmm. like a whole, regardless of what's at home, whether you got a triad or a quad at home, what shows up in my office as a person or two people. So that's why mm-hmm. I have a tendency to talk that way because that's my experience. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
Yeah, so that's that's one thing. This is just one issue that I'm picking, you know, is to understand that that is the most common thing in the world and try not to catastrophize like that, you know? And I think one reason people do is like they're, they're trying to imagine the worst case scenario so they're prepared for it. Or some people may be unconsciously trying to manipulate the partner, like, you know, because a lot of times, you know, when you catastrophize, then the person feels guilty and they kind of back down. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, so that so that's just one one issue. Um, the the distance between what the two people want matters. Like the, if if there's two people that are different and the and their differences are kind of like the difference between Encino and Sherman Oaks, which are you know right by each other, you know. You know, like if the distance isn't very far, then then each person will see that the other person's trying, right? Uh-huh. And and that will make them feel better. But if the difference between these two people is more like the difference between California and New Zealand, they can be trying really hard and reaching for each other, and the other person might be like, "You're not even trying. I can't even see you try." When they actually are both trying. So, you know, uh-huh. this division, it matters what degree you're talking about in terms of how difficult it is. That's, that's another thing to think about. Um, but it doesn't, if your division is, is great, that doesn't mean it's not going to work. It just means that if you want it to work, you're going to have to really be patient because, you know, there is this huge difference. Um, I guess the third thing I'll, I'll say, and then I'll, and then I'll, see what else you, uh, where you want it to go is, um, let's see, what was I going to say? Um, a lot of times when people are new, you might have one person, it may seem like there's this massive chasm and that one person really wants to be non-monogamous and the other person is just like, this is terrifying. I don't even want to do this. We were happy as monogamous. What are we doing? And then they finally go to the party or whatever the thing is, and all of a sudden everything switches, and the person that was excited ends up being the jealous one, and the person that was terrified <laughs> all of a sudden is the belle of the ball, and is having this great time. So just keep in mind, like, there's so many different situations, and that happens a lot, you know, where all of a sudden it's, it's flipped, or all of a sudden it's a non-issue, because someone all of a sudden had an experience and they're like, oh, right, this is amazing. Okay, never mind. Let's do this. You know what I mean? So Yeah, well, that, that, that happened know. with a, a couple that I was coaching where he, for, for years and years and years, told his wife that he had the hot wife fantasy. He wanted to see her with other men. And she's just like, no, no, no. And then finally, after, I don't know, 15 years or something, she finally tried it. And just really fell for somebody. And then the husband's super jealous, like really traumatized and triggered. It still turns him on at the same time, but also really triggered by it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's funny, funny on a side note, because, I mean, you know, when you read some literature about our sexual fantasies, a lot of the things that we fantasize about are the things that we're scared of. Like a woman, mm-hmm. you know, who has a fantasy about rape or ravishment. That's her greatest mm-hmm. fear in real life, but, you know, within a kink scene that's safe and consensual, that can be super hot. Or a man who has a fantasy of being cuckold, that may be his worst fear in real life. And it's like, that's like one of the main things to think about. It's like, or ask yourself, is this a fantasy that should stay nicely and safely tucked away in my noggin, you mm-hmm. know, that I use <laughs> to pleasure myself when I masturbate? Or should this be something that I actually play out? 
And unfortunately, some people don't know until they do play it out, and they're like, oh, shit, what did I just get myself into? Exactly. (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay, well, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Kate Laurie, who just came out with the book Open Deeply, and she is a, a licensed psychotherapist who specializes in uh, helping people who are non-monogamous as well as other groups. And um, if you have any questions for Kate, please feel free to call in. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. And you won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold, and we'll get to your call when we have a, a pause. Again, that number is 657-383-1132. So here's the direction I want to go now. Um, I want to ask your opinion about agreements because I know a lot of times when people first start out, they have pages and pages of agreements. You know, you're going to come home at midnight. You're only going to kiss on the first date, la, 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 la. And now after my doing this for 25 years, I don't know, for the last 15 years or so, my only agreement with my partners has been if you engage in high-risk sex, just tell me before we have sex. That's the only agreement I have, Mm -hmm. and the rest is – just be kind. And if you're not kind, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. Um, but that's after right. many years of practice. So how, how do you feel about agreements, particularly when people are new? Yeah, well, I think it, it depends on what they want, right? So this, this is one thing that I would say, you know, there's some people that some, let's say two people that um, are starting out with non-monogamy there's some folks that start out with very rigid relationship agreements, right? Like say uh, a swinger couple, right? And they have, you know, they're like, we're not going to fall in love and we're not going to date separately and we're going to play together and we're going to go home with each other at the end of the night, et cetera, and so on. It's pretty damn rigid. You know, and I I like to joke that a whole bunch of swingers together at like a hotel takeover is kind of like an accountant convention where like one rule book kind of looks similar to the next, you know. Um, Uh And then you could have another another couple that has the opposite where it's, um, you know, they have very few agreements and it's very, it's the opposite of rigid. It's very loose and flowing. Neither model is necessarily superior um you know in in terms of you know i've known like swing lifestyle people that have been together for 20 30 years and they're still having a great time and that's what's worked for them you know and i've known people with loose agreements where that completely works with them works for them and i've seen the contrary where it's a a a shit storm in either direction so neither rigid neither having a lot of boundaries or having very loose boundaries is superior it's what works for you right mm-hmm. um you know so when you're starting out it might be advisable to have more agreements because you're kind of like a little baby falling on your butt and falling on your face you, you probably need to start out with a tricycle rather than riding a bicycle you know you need kind of some guardrails so to speak and so to have some agreements that is more like a harm reduction model um, might be helpful. Like to have some agreement, you know, like if we go to a play party, let's check in on each other, you know, some things like that. They're just designed to make people feel safe 
And then as you proceed with non-monogamy and you grow to trust each other in this way, because let's admit, let's look at the fact that learning to trust within the non-monogamy is a complete reboot. I've had Mm -hmm. couples that have been together for 15 years and they trust each other to pay the taxes and raise the kids and be good business partners and life partners. And then they do non-monogamy and all of a sudden things are just blowing up left, right, and center when they come to therapy with, you know, to see me, you know. And so non-monogamy is a complete reboot. It's a new way to learn to trust each other. And Mm -hmm. once you learn to trust each other, then you can start to kick off the training wheels and you may not need as many boundaries because you might get to the point where you can just look at each other and kind of read each other and, and know how to adjust and be kind. But when people mm-hmm. start out, even kind people sometimes aren't kind, not maliciously, but just because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And this makes yeah. me think of the, the dreaded NRE. I'm, I mean, I call it dreaded when, when your partner's in NRE. Um, so I found that when couples have been practicing non-monogamy for a long time, they can see NRE for what it is. And for those that don't know, it stands for new relationship energy. And it's like that cocktail of hormones that happens when you're newly falling in love with somebody. And it's recommended that you don't make any major decisions while you're under the influence of NRE. (laughs) Um, But I find that uh, couples who've been through that a few times can, um, cannot, you know, can take it with a grain of salt and just let the other partner enjoy it. But when it's new, it could be super scary and threatening, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did, did you have a question about NRE? Uh, no, just, yeah, I want to just have, uh, hear your thoughts about when, a, you know, a couple is new to non-monogamy and somebody is in NRE for the first time and how scary that is for the other one. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's it's one of those things when you're new and you're experiencing that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just really, at these days, there's so much literature that I, you know, I hope that people are starting to take things in and realize that NRE is, is just what you said. It's a chemical combination in your body that, that is like a drug high. That, and, and I've seen this where, you know, there's a couple that have been together for a long time and then they play separately, and one or, one or both of them is experiencing NRE, and they tell themselves a story. They tell themselves, oh, well, this person has to be my person because, I, you know, they are treating me like I am the sun, moon, and stars, and I can go off into the sunset with them and feel the way that I've always wanted to feel, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, like, so important to realize what NRE is and know that it is something that, over time usually fades out and what you're left with usually is mostly oxytocin, the the cuddle hormone, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, some, everybody's different. Every couple is different regarding this, but but this is what usually happens. And so, you know, I think for the person experiencing it, it can be kind of like, you know, you hear about people in a fight, they see red, you know, somebody in NRE, you could say they're seeing pink. They have a tendency Mm -hmm. to, be so focused on the other lover that they don't realize that they're being cruel to the, the long-term partner. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times they're doing things like checking their phone all the time when they're, when they're watching their favorite show and it's supposed to be their time together, not a time to be talking to other lovers, you know, things like that. Right. I mean, speaking of that, that's, that's one little boundary that you can do to kind of manage NRE because in that stage, there isn't a lot of insight. You're, you're kind of lost a little bit. 
And so one thing that I've noticed that helps with couples, and this always comes up, it is making some, carving out some precious time. Like, okay, so at night, you know, our, we, we like to watch our favorite show from eight to nine. So from eight to nine, except for the screen that the show is playing, we're going to put away our phones. We're not going to be, you know, talking to any of our other lovers. This is our precious time. Or we both love art and we're going to go to the museum and, during that date, because that's a precious time for each other, we're not going to be checking our phone. We're going to put our phones away, and we're just going to focus on that. You know, at the end of the day, our partners just want to feel cherished, right? Right. You know, and they don't want to feel disrespected. So carving out time like that to just focus on cherishing that particular partner can really be a game changer, and it can be a a very clear-cut boundary that you're creating that can – manage NRE even when you're lost in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. And what are what are some other um, possible threats to connection besides NRE? You know, I, I think a lot of times what can be um, a couple of things. One, uh, what I call typecasting. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of times with a couple that decides to play separately, um, maybe they've been together for a long, let's, let's imagine the couple that's been together for a long time. And, uh, and so now they have chosen a lover on the outside, regardless of whether that couple says to themselves, we have a hierarchy or we don't have a hierarchy. A lot of times the same thing happens if they're not careful, which is the outside lover ends up becoming the sexual primary. So there, it's almost like there's, <laughs> You know how you think of type typecasting in shows like, uh, you know, Christopher Reeve got kind of typecasted as a superhero or, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So now this outside lover is kind of typecast as the sexy one. And mm-hmm. a lot of times for the person in the primary or nesting partner relationship, they did not sign on board for being the responsible, boring one. And in fact, a lot of people that are non-monogamous fall in love under what I would call a sixth love language carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure, they like to think of themselves as their partner's adventure buddy and the fun one and the one that they can be free with. And when this other person, when this also all of a sudden gets outsourced to this other person and they're being treated kind of like as the mom or dad where their partner is asking permission to see this other person, it can be uh, very disconcerting. You know, mm-hmm. but we can get in front of these things so that it, it doesn't have to go down this way. You know, if we get in front of it and we learn some methods to manage it in advance, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I always say, like, if you have a date with somebody else and you're coming back home to your nesting partner, um, like, you just got to have the date. So, now hold the space for them and their feelings and try to give them some extra love and reassurance. Rather than going out on a fun date, coming home, your partner's upset, and then it becomes about you. Like, why do you have to be upset? You just ruined my date, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, instead of putting it back on you, like, let them have their response, reaction, or needs. And give a little extra to your nesting partner because you just had got to have the date. Right. Yeah, yeah. And kind of through that same lens, uh, a little bit different, but, you know, I think reconnection rituals are important. This is just another way to make a partner feel cherished. And it doesn't have to be, 
It could be after a date, but it could be just, you know, whoever comes home from work last where you come in the door and you go to the bathroom, you change your, from your work clothes or what have you, and then you have some kind of reconnection ritual. A lot of times people mess up here because the first thing out of their mouth was, how was your day? which launches uh-huh. people into talking about their asshole boss and things like that, things that are not connecting. A lot mm-hmm. of times the reconnection ritual is just going to be physical. It's just going to be touch or eye contact, something that's almost a little Tantra inspired. You know, it mm-hmm. might just be a hug or it might be holding their face and being like, I love you and I'm so grateful for you. It could literally just be 30 seconds. But those kind of ritual, little rituals, that you just have in your life, ideally every day, let your partner know that they're cherished, you know? And I think that's Mm -hmm. so important, especially when you have outside lovers that um, are bright and shiny and new, you know? Right. Um, And when when you talk about the three pillars, intellectual, emotional, and sexual, is that regarding um, the different levels to stay connected um, with your partner? Yeah, like that is one way to head head off at the path. Um, this dynamic that I'm talking about from happening is you stay intellectually and emotionally and, and uh, sexually connected to your partner, then when other people, when new people come into your life, they're just going to be a great addition to your life. They're not going to be something that damages your primary or nesting relationship. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's face it, in a long-term relationship, like on the intellectual level, a lot of times we start phoning it in. We just mm-hmm. tell our partner the same stuff over and over again, or we daydream while our partner is talking about something we've heard before. But it, how much effort does it take to be like, okay, I'm going to make a, uh, an agreement with myself that I'm going to find, I'm going to learn something new every day, whether I listen to a podcast or whatever, and I'm going to make a point to tell my partner something new I learned today. You know, that is not hard. Or, you know, emotionally, so often if our partner is upset about something that's an ongoing issue, we start to just daydream and our compassion gets low. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we, rem- if, we set in- if we make a commitment to ourselves to, as John Gottman says, turn towards our partner, then that can be a, ja- a game changer. You know, for those who don't understand or don't know about turning towards behavior. To me, it's like a really important thing that John Gottman talks about. So when your partner comes to you and says, do you want to go to the action adventure movie with me? A lot of people would just say to themselves, they would just ask themselves if they like action adventure films or not. And if they don't, they might say, no, I don't want to go because I don't like action adventure films. But if instead you say to yourself, oh, my partner is trying to connect to me and now I have a choice to either connect to them or not, now your decision process might be different and what you say might be different. You might say, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd love to go and I'm going to enjoy watching your happiness, but I'm going to make a deal with you next time, next week. Um, you know how, how I like art, art house type films, you know, like independent films. Let's go to the independent film theater and see one of my movies and I'm going to ask the same thing, that you have fun watching me have a good time, you mm-hmm. know? And now you're developing a practice of turning towards your partner, which is another way to stay emotionally connected, the second pillar, you know, and then the third pillar is the sexual pillar. Um, You know, again, it's like when we have these bright, shiny other partners, sometimes we start to just experiment sexually with them 
um, and we forget to find ways to connect with our partner. With a long-term partner, again, a lot of times what we're working with is the oxytocin. So two methods that can work with that cuddle hormone are tantra and kink. You know, um, not all kink, but the kind of kink that's really bonding uh, mm -hmm. works well with that cuddle hormone. And of course, mm -hmm. Tantra is all about intimacy. And so those are two that work well, I think, for long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those, those yeah. are a, a little taster spoon of what I'm talking about there. Beautiful, thank you. Um, so a lot of times people say, like, you know, I want to open our relationship and and then everything just crashes and burns because the relationship wasn't very strong in the first place. So one of them is kind of using non-monogamy to get some need met that wasn't being met in the relationship. And oftentimes that can fall apart and then they blame non-monogamy for it when really it was that their relationship just wasn't very strong in the first place. So if a couple came to you and said, you know, we want to open our relationship, but we, we want to do it right. We want to make sure we have this before we start before we even begin to bring anybody else into it, what would you say to them? Mm. Uh, you know, one thing I, I think I would, uh, usually I'll do individual sessions with that couple and I'll learn mm -hmm. both of their backstories. I'll learn what they might, and I'll literally say to them, in this individual session, I want you to tell me anything in your backstory that you think might get projected into this relationship and, and cause mm -hmm. some kind of chaos in your relationship. That's the first thing I do right out of the gate is find out mm -hmm. that stuff because that's very, that's specific to that couple, right? Mm -hmm. And so once I have that information, now I'm, I'm you know, so now I'm operating from a trauma-informed place from the get-go, right? Um, mm -hmm. In therapy, a lot of times, if there's any kind of um, major trauma that I think might get triggered within non-monogamy, I'll do separate sessions where I do EMDR to clear those traumas so that they won't show up in the relationship. But, you know, a lot of times um, couples will have what I call a double trigger, where not only both people are, are triggered in a relationship, but each person's trigger is triggering the other person. So it starts to right. spiral up really fast. And so right. once I find out what the double trigger is, then I'll do EMDR on that to uh, bring it down. But even if somebody's not doing EMDR, you know, I think it's important to figure out kind of what your double triggers are, those moments where you're functioning at your lowest in the relationship, and try and work those things out even before you get started. Um, because let's face it, within non-monogamy, it pokes at our attachment injuries more than monogamy does because, you know, attachment injuries by definition have to do with uh, our, our former attachments and non-monogamy is all about attachments, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's one thing that I'm talking about from the get-go. Another thing that I'm going to be teaching them is my epic communication model, which, you know, there's a lot of great communication models out there, um, like Imago Dialogue and non-violent communication, but I haven't seen one that interweaves, you know, a trauma-informed lens you know, when you mm -hmm. talk to therapists, a lot of times couples therapy and trauma therapy uh, run parallel. They don't integrate a whole lot. You'll see couples mm -hmm. therapists stay in their lanes, trauma therapists stay in their lanes, which to me is in complete insanity because the thing that gets in the way of two, you know, any two people uh, and intimacy is unresolved trauma. So in the EPIC model, uh, I'll just run through it really quickly. Um, the E is the emotional piece, the empathizing piece. 
The P is the physical piece, the grounding piece, which is before, during, and after. The I is the intellectual piece, the validating piece. And then the C, C is the compassion in action, kind of a little Buddhist-inspired piece at the end, you know. And so um, without, I'm just going to try and be very quick about it, you know, if you start out any hard non-monogamous conversation with grounding, already that's a game changer that most people don't do. A lot mm-hmm. of times, most couples that come into me instead, what they're doing is they sit down and they do what, something I call, law, they lawyer up, where it's almost like both people uh, are lawyers and they have their invisible paralegal next to them and they're, and they're going to war, you know, and they're looking to win, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. And so I try and break that down and teach them uh, this communication model. And the key part that's different than things like the Imago Dialogue is the grounding that's all the way through it. And mm-hmm. in that case, you don't, you don't assume what the partner needs. You might ask them. Like if you have a partner that is upset, you might say, I see that you're upset. I see you want to talk to me. Is there anything I can do to help ground you? Whether it's like putting a hand on your knee, holding your hand, you know, being the big spoon on the bed, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. from the get go, you're trying to ground them and then checking in, in the process of empathizing and validating with them and checking in. It's like, okay, um, it looks like everything's going well, but how are you doing? How are you feeling in your body? Are you still grounded? Is there anything that you need? And what might that be? Oh, you want me to pet your head while you talk? Okay, I'm petting your head while you talk, you know? And then mm-hmm. when you close the whole thing with compassion and you're saying something to the effect of, okay, it sounds like you're feeling that I've empathized with you. You feel validated that I intellectually understand where you're coming from. You feel seen and heard. Now, what can I do to help you with this, you know? Um, and then the person would say whatever it is that they think that would make the situation better. And when you're done with the whole thing, you might end with saying, okay, it sounds like we have, work through this whole thing. Is there anything, any kind of aftercare that you need on this side? Um, Like, do you need a hug or, you know, is there anything that you need on the other side? And at this point you'd be passing the emotional talking stick to the other person. That's the tricky part, right? Because the other person, when they voice their needs and everything, it can potentially undo all the good work that you've done. And that's a whole other conversation, right? Um, Mm -hmm. but this is kind of the front end of the epic communication model. And even if a couple does a little bit of this, it'll be better than the lawyering up that I usually see. Right. Beautiful. That's gorgeous. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so we have come to the end of our time and that just flew by. You're just a wealth of information, Kate. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that (laughs) with us. Um, but I want to give you a chance to tell yeah. I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how people can reach you and anything else that you want to offer them. Um, well, if you want to seek out my psychotherapy services, as I said, I'm a trauma therapist and I specialize in non-monogamy. So pretty much half my client load comes to me for unresolved trauma and half of the client load comes to me for couple therapy and some people a little bit of both, right? Because I talked about that. So anyway, my website is katelaree.com. My book, Open Deeply, A Guide to Conscious, Compassionate, Open Relationships, is you can buy it wherever books are sold. 
books on Amazon, but if you want the paperback, please support our local bookstores like here in LA, Skylight Books um, or Book Soup are two examples. Uh, I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Open Deeply with Kate Lurie. Basically on any social media, if you just type in Kate Lurie, I'll pop up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Kate. Um, I wish you the best of luck with your book. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks again for your wealth of information. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me on. And so far, the, the book is doing really well, so I'm excited about that. That's so great. Thank you. Okay, talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh, bye-bye. Well, listeners, if you're still with us, I just want to let you know that next Tuesday we have another show. I believe it's May, yeah, May 31st. And my guest will be Jolie Hamilton, and she calls herself the relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. So she helps people um, have freedom and deep security and sexual fulfillment um, when they shift from plain old monogamy to anything outside the standard default model of relationships. So she'll be a lot of fun to have, too. So please join us next week at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Leading Edge Love Radio um, at blogtalkradio.com. Okay, we'll talk to you soon, everybody. Have a good night. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.